Welcome back to America's Talking. I'm Austin Berg. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Michael West. Dr. West teaches at the University of Dallas. He holds a PhD in English from Columbia University, a master's from the University of Houston, and a bachelor's from the University of Dallas. His research focuses on Renaissance lit, especially the theater of Shakespeare and his contemporaries. Thank you for joining us, Dr. West. Thanks for having me, Austin. So I was listening to an interview this week and a highly uh, divisive figure by the name of Peter Thiel was talking about a question that he often asks in interviews. And I think this is actually maybe in zero to one. I can't remember if it's in his book or not. And a question he asked that I've been asking people this week is, uh, what is an important truth that very few people agree with you on? I wanted to ask you that question in the context of literature. What's an important truth about Western literature or literature generally that very few people seem to agree with you on? It's a great question. Um, I would say it's something like um, the best books that we read, um, old and new, are the ones and are part of what makes them the best books is that we don't understand uh, what they are saying to us. And meaning part of their greatness is constituted by our inability to understand them. And I think there's something counterintuitive like about that, because I think that most people rather commonsensically think of um, literature as composed of words, and words are a thing that you use to communicate with other people, and therefore uh, good use of words is good communication. But I think that that's just to, uh, to think that a good work of literature does that is to misunderstand what literature is and does, more importantly. That's how I'd put, that's how I'd put it for now. So good literature, the, the best literature to you is the most challenging and even is it in its impenetrability or in its difficulty for us to understand what it's trying to say to us? Are there, aren't there some limits to that, right? Like if it's, if someone has, you know, a book, that's just a, a bunch of cryptography, that's difficult, <laughs> right? So what, where, where are we drawing the lines there? That's a really interesting answer. Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a great point. So yes, uh, you get too impenetrable and you fail to succeed as a work of literature, but you get too, too patent, too open, too obvious, and you also fail. And um, I guess I'm, I'm thinking of when you say that um, we have to know that we, we, don't, we, won't, we don't want it to be too incomprehensible because then we wouldn't know what it's saying to us. Part of what I think is going on is that actually, I don't, I don't think that great works of literature say things to us exactly. I think what happens is, is that they are occasions for us to have uh, a certain kind of insight uh, about the world that is necessarily also an insight about ourselves as human beings. Um, and because of that, there is a kind of infiniteness into what they can say, because more people in the future will be born who will be, who have different experiences and new experiences than you and I uh, have had in some ways they will be more limited, but in some ways they will they will be they will be ones that we don't share, and partly in consequence, some of the best works of literature will say new things to them that they don't say to us and that they've never said to someone in the past. I think that's just an amazing feature of the best books, and the best books are the ones that people who have very different kinds of lives love to read and have loved to read for very different kinds of reasons. Um, and I think Shakespeare is a great example of that. That's yeah. Okay. So let's get into Shakespeare. Yeah. What's your biggest, what do you think is the biggest shortcoming in how we teach Shakespeare? I mean, you could take what like Western canon stuff generally, what's our biggest shortcoming in America 
high school, maybe through higher ed and and how we teach Shakespeare and it's relevant. Yeah, I think I think um, a lot of it has to do with our sense. I think it's okay. I think we don't admit that Shakespeare is hard and difficult. Um, and because of that, Shakespeare feels like a mountain that one is failing to climb. Um, and there's a lot of sort of bad feelings involved with that. Um, and, and so people are sort of understandably put off by that. I think you need to acknowledge it can be kind of hard. It can be hard both linguistically. Um, Shakespeare was considered a difficult writer in his own time in comparison to other writers. He was considered to have an overstuffed uh, style that was too elaborate, too ornate. There was too much going on at once. You couldn't quite follow it. And that is the experience of many high school, college, and adult readers of Shakespeare today. So uh, putting ourselves on a level with his contemporaries and saying, hey, you're not, you're not an idiot if you don't get this the first time. That's okay. So one of them is I think we, we kind of prize comprehensibility. And then when we fail to comprehend Shakespeare, we think, oh, we're not getting something. There's something off about this, something off about me. Um, the other one is that I think we, um, there's good reasons to be respectful of Shakespeare. Um, he, was, he was an excellent writer. He, he figured out a lot of things and he was a very insightful person about things that we want to know about. Um, but I don't think he was a sage. I don't think he was Socrates. I don't think he was Aristotle. I think he's a different kind of, he offers us some, a different kind of wisdom if he offers us wisdom. And we, we do him and ourselves a disservice if we look to him for someone who um, uh, uh, can give us what an Aristotle can, or a Socrates can give us. So that's interesting. I wanted to, to talk about uh, sort of the meaning making function of mm -hmm. literature. And when you think about Shakespeare, I think you, you, you think more maybe about what you were saying, the insights about maybe the human condition that it, right. that it brings about or the things that it makes it, us think about ourselves. Mm -hmm. But his pieces, you don't necessarily think of them as meaning-making pieces of literature. At least I, that's not how I was taught them in mm -hmm. school. But can you, could you speak on that as a function of literature generally and of Shakespeare? What, what do you mean by meaning making, Austin? So, for example, uh, somebody reads a reads a myth, mm -hmm. and they want to orient their life around the lessons maybe that they learn in that myth, and they want to strive to be like those people. And mm -hmm. maybe there that is in Shakespeare, but it's not something that was ever discussed when I was discussing discussing Shakespeare. Yeah. So, I mean, part of this is a function of you know the the famous characters in Shakespeare tend to be people that one. So rather obviously would not wish to model one's life after. So, so King Lear, Hamlet, these are <laughs> Macbeth. These are not, these are not Othello. These are not people whose lives end well. Um, now, a, a lot of what I think the wisdom is, I mean, the, the wisdom of tragedy is, is, is sort of don't be that. Um, I don't think that's mm -hmm. wrong to say, don't be like Lear. <laughs> don't mm -hmm. be like Hamlet. Don't be like Macbeth. Um, I think so. Part of that, I think, is when you say that we don't look to Shakespeare for that. Part of that is just because uh, Shakespeare is is tragedy is more respected than comedy as a genre, and tragedies don't offer you models for imitation. Um, they offer you either anti models for imitation, or they offer you experiences of sublime terror, in which you feel your insignificance as a human being, and or, or something like that. Right? Like you enter into something bigger than yourself. So that's part of what. I think why we tend not to look to Shakespeare for that. The other one is that he doesn't write novels. And um, 
you know, uh, the novel didn't exist in Shakespeare's time in the way it does in ours. And so when people talk about literature today, I think that we implicitly mean the novel. That's what people, that's what we mean. Like if you go to this, the section of the bookstore called classics right? in the literature section, it's, it's going to be novels. It's going to be 19th century novels, which are awesome. And they're so great and totally worth reading. And I've, you know, I, I, I love those books. Um, but Shakespeare doesn't write novels. And so I guess kind of in consequence, he doesn't offer us quite the same thing. We tend to think, for example, the novel as having a protagonist who has a journey that they have, there's a character development and we are sort of, seeing ourselves through this character in many ways. And we're often comparing ourselves to this person's life. And that's because a lot of novels very consciously and rightly um, depict the world that we walk around in a very recognizable way. And then you pick up Shakespeare and there's a lot of, you know, like doths and anons and there's Kings and like, it's just like a different world, like linguistically. And then also in terms of what's represented. And so we understandably don't, I think, look to him for the same things. I think that's fine. I think, I think we don't need to. Your point about novels being what is meant by literature now is interesting because I was going to ask you kind of about it's odd that, say, uh, an English department or someone who says literature at once means Shakespeare and, you know, Nausgaard, some some new autofiction writer that is doing right. something in a completely different universe for a completely different reason. And mm-hmm. those things somehow are both we teach both of those as things you read. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. So. In the sense, what do you think are potentially? I talk about this a lot when we talk to folks in in the arts generally. There's this theory of uh, Are you familiar with the Lindy effect? The old yeah. things tend to the half life of something is predicted by its life to date. So mm-hmm. if a if a Broadway play is running on Broadway for a week, the odds that it runs another week increase. Same thing if it's running for ten weeks, fifty weeks. Mm-hmm. And it's named after the, the Lindy Diner off Broadway, where you'd see a schedule for those. Mm-hmm. What works stand out to you today in literature that you think are potentially the most long lasting? So it's interesting you say this. So as, as someone who spends a lot of time with Shakespeare, my, my sense of what today is, is rather maybe longer than most people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like the one that just popped in my head was uh, Toni Morrison's Beloved, which I believe was written in the 80s. Which is mm-hmm. not today, but if you're- I'm saying last hundred years, what okay. you think could be 500. And I'm, I'm glad you took a broader view of what today is. Yeah, so, so I guess uh, that was the first one that comes to mind. Something like Beloved, which is such a difficult work in so many ways, both, terms, both stylistically, it's just very hard to understand what's going on. Um, it's, the work is uncompromising in that it doesn't, you know, no, I, I, it shows up on, on sort of, um, you know, uh, Ethnic and you know, race and ethnicity in American literature syllabi, um, and there's a way in which it's interesting because you know it's it's interested in black people in America. Um, uh, let's just say it's it's not an easy read, um, and it will not confirm and comfort you in any way, no matter what you think about the world. And I think that's actually important to uh, what makes it a powerful work and why it will be read is because it, no one will be able, I think, no, you know, no, no, it doesn't fit politically very, it doesn't fit politically anywhere. I think in any, um, dominant political group today. And so it won't be, it won't be captured by any of them. It, it will belong to none of them and it will be a, um, a challenge to all of us. That, that's one that comes to mind. Um, I, uh, I will confess. I, um, I love David Foster Wallace um, who wrote the 1100 
page doorstop, uh, Infinite Jest. Um, I don't know if that's a great novel. I actually um, uh, think that his essays are better. Mm-hmm. Um, I will I will say that the you know one thing that I've just noticed is that is in even in my adulthood is the the real kind of growing up of of the essay and the memoir as works of literature that people take much more seriously. Better writers are writing them, and they're um, and they are you know they're 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 I think the form is maturing in very important ways. Um, and so I'm really interested. I actually don't know which memoirs are going to last, but I will say that they, they seem to be better. The, the more recent ones seem better than older ones that I've read. Um, and so, and the essay as well. And so I think of David Fletcher essays, I, I could see those being read. And, and what will be so interesting is because when you read them now, you know, they're about like um, books that came out in the early nineties and there's way in which it's like nothing could be more dated than a book review from the early nineties. Um, but what's so strange and wonderful is the way he isn't interested actually in the book all that much. He'll, you know, his, um, yeah. his review of the seventies tennis star, Tracy Austin, who I have never heard of except in David Foster Wallace's essay about her memoir is fascinating because it's mostly a discussion of, uh, the psychology of excellence and it's in specific, the psychology of excellence in sports, which I think is a perennial question, um, especially for bookish people, which is why am I uh, such a thoughtful BB person? Um, uh, not, I'm really great at some things, but I'm not great at other things. And there are other people who seem to be uh, comparatively less eloquent and reflective about the world whose excellence surpasses mine. You know, the, the, the point is like, I might be a good writer, um, but, you know, professional athletes are better at their sport than I am at writing. And I think that that's like a, that's a, that's an important question to think about. Like, what is it that, that enables excellence and what kinds of human excellence are depend upon a certain kind of eloquence and self-consciousness and which ones? actually um, are inhibited by eloquence and self-consciousness. And what does it mean about excellence? And this is, you know, this to me, this connects like in the 90s, it was an important question, but now this connects, I think, to all sorts of interesting questions about, you know, the ruling class in America and how they privilege things like certain forms of speech and ways of talking and of using language and all those things. I think David Foster Wallace was onto 30 years ago. So that, that's another thing with someone who I would love I will certainly be reading him in 50 years. If I'm that in, that's a great insight from his work among many. And I'm curious, that makes me curious about the ways in which great literature, can you talk about a, a way in which a piece of great literature has changed how you operate in the world? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's talk about King Lear. Um, I am uh, King Lear for uh, some of your readers may know begins with uh, a king who is an old father who says he's going to give away his kingdom. He's going to divide it into thirds and he's going to give away his inheritance before he dies. And he has decided who is going to get what, but he says, Oh, um, you guys have to say how much you love me and then I'll make my decision. But we know from the way he makes, from he actually makes the decision sequentially, that he's actually decided in advance. The thing is a complete show. And his daughter Cordelia, uh, who loves him the best and everyone knows it, she says, she says, you know, she says nothing to him and he gets pissed off and the, the play goes downhill from there. Anyway, and, and the question is like, why does Lear do this? It's an insane decision. Like, why is he doing this? And... um. Uh, the, the most interesting interpretation of this is from Stanley Cavell, the uh, analytic philosopher at Harvard. And he doesn't quite make the argument, but he just sort of observes that Lear is the kind of person who can't receive love. 
And he can't acknowledge that he needs to receive love. And that the way that he kind of stage manages everything and keeps everything as a kind of public profession um, is uh, related to his inability to just admit that he wants Cordelia to say that he, he needs Cordelia to say that, that she loves him. And that's, he needs that. And he won't admit that. And he won't acknowledge that. And he won't acknowledge his dependence on her. And um, I hope in many ways, I am not like King Lear. But I will say, I saw that and I was like, oh yeah. You know, it's, it's some sort of insight that like, even those of us who mm. seem very competent and capable in the world um, have a really hard time acknowledging what we need from other people sometimes. Um, especially those of us who are teachers. And I think Lear models, you know, the most disastrous outcome of uh, refusing to come to terms with that. Mm, beautiful. And Cavell, right, was a big uh, Wallace influence, if I remember correctly, right? I mean, did they? Yeah, that's okay. That's really interesting. I didn't know. I wasn't aware that of his thoughts on Lear. So, wow. That brings up a lot of themes for me. But uh, you mentioned beloved and kind of its role today in syllabi in colleges that's obviously become a um as it always is uh subject to kind of political ish adjacent infighting about what is a western canon and what should be Mm -hmm. in that and what purpose does it serve Mm -hmm. uh could you talk about how that debate has maybe evolved over your uh, tenure in academia and how you would approach setting that if you were to start a new university focused on, you know, teaching great works? Wow. Um, so it's easier to talk about the first one than the second. <laughs> um, I guess what I observed is that so I went to University of Dallas where I work now. I went here as an undergraduate and we had a, um, you know, fairly kind of classical reading list. That we that we did here in in literature, philosophy, and and history, um, meaning like I didn't I didn't read Beloved as an undergraduate. Um, we read a bunch of other stuff that was totally worth reading, <laughs> so um, I I don't regret that. I will say at, at the time when I was here in in the two thousands, it felt like there was this thing called the Canon Wars in the eighties and nineties, in which people bickered about what books we should read, and some people said like, oh well, books by white people are are racist or, you know, reinforces racism. And then other people said like, no, we need to open up the canon. And I thought that was a really important question. And then I left UD and went to graduate school and no one cared about that question. They were just not interested. And I think it was a combination of two things. One is people just kind of decided, they just kind of, they, they, they had divided the kingdoms, so to speak, and had decided that it was better not to argue about some things all the time. And that it was like, look, just let those people teach their thing. Let those people teach their thing. That's fine. And I kind of saw the wisdom of that, actually, because what it meant was that it, um, to choose to read um, certain kinds of books didn't mark you as a certain kind of person when I was in graduate school. It, like, it, it wasn't considered like a super reactionary thing to read Shakespeare. And it wasn't considered uh, like a super politically progressive thing to read, you know, black writers, like it was, you know, I think the the, the conversation had matured quite a bit. Um, And I think most people realized that the most extreme positions that people took in the eighties just didn't make any sense. And in retrospect, it's very, it's very obvious why that's so. So that's one thing I'll observe is that just, just in my time in, in, in academia, people are very polite to each other. That's the other thing is that I think people are more polite now, maybe than they were in the eighties and nineties. 
people don't like to fight in person. They love to fight online, but they don't like to fight in person. This is what I've observed. And I don't know what the relationship is between the two of those, but um, that, that's one observation that I'll make. Um, in terms of what, what was the second question, Austin? What would I put on my syllabus? What, you're, you're a university charged with, let's say you, you graduate this university and you get a liberal arts degree. Mm-hmm. What should that university, and, and you're in Dr. West's university, is that person required to read literature and who decides that and, and what is its function in that mm-hmm. education? Yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm a big believer in different kinds of universities. Um, and so, uh, I'm hesitant to say that anyone in any university needs to do this or that thing. This is just yours. And I will not make a blanket assumption that all universities should be this way, but in the spirit of opening up higher education to more competition, which I think is good, we will, you know, take the specific, (laughs) specific instance of yours, what you would like to, to put forth. Yes. I think, I mean, what you're asking is, I think is, is what is the role of uh, a literature and a literary education within an education more broadly? Um, And um, to me, I I sort of see two, two main functions that it can do. One is uh, rhetorical and that it it just trains you in the arts of language and it makes you a skilled uh, master of your own language. And it means that your language no longer masters you. And Close reading, the close, slow reading of poetry in particular can help you to see the way in which words are analogous to bricks that we use to make things and that there is an art to language and that you can learn the art and you can, more importantly, you can see when people are using the art on you. And so I think that's a, like an absolutely like incredibly important thing that people learn who read poetry very slowly. And so I guess my thought is, uh, yeah, I would love there. I think there should be a course where people read poetry slowly and are forced to look at poetry as comprised of individual words and to think about them very carefully and very, very slowly. And that enables you to be the person to, you know, read headlines and you understand what a headline is doing and how a good headline works. And when a headline is shaping your, trying to shape your opinion in a certain direction. Um, so it, it trains you rhetorically. Literature would do that. The other thing it would do is, I think, it, um, I do think it's right. I think we do see ourselves. Um, I think that literature tends to be, on the whole, it tends to be representations of human action, um, and that we benefit from encountering other versions of ourselves. Um, in, in, you know, so the King Lear example, uh, I, I just gave. Um, but everyone else has other examples. I mean, you, you all, we all have characters we identify with, or we, we recognize situations in our own lives through literature. And so what it does is it expands our own sense of our own worlds that we, um, we can, we can see the ways in which we are unique and we can see the ways in which we are utterly like other people. And I think those are both, um, those are important because we are special snowflakes and also you're not the only snowflake in the air. I think that those are both true and people need to know that. Um, I didn't give you specifics. Do you want a reading list, Austin? <laughs> that was my last question was actually, if you have to recommend to someone, the average lay person in America who maybe reads, say they're reading four or five books a year, and that's mm-hmm. generous given what we know about reading trends, and you have to pick a classic work of literature for that person uh, to read. So this is a very difficult question because you don't know anything about this person, but it's, it has to be a general. And obviously the way you get someone to read it, it's that, you know, it's something that they're interested in. Mm -hmm. But uh, if you had to pull something, it could be from Shakespeare or maybe anything. 
classical Western literature, what are you what are you recommending that they read One Piece and why? At the moment, the one that comes to mind is uh, Thomas More's Utopia, um, which I just read with my students last spring, and we all adored it. Meaning, I adored it, and they adored it. And um, uh, More's Utopia is a two book work. Um, it's written in uh, the, the 16th century, and it's um, it's sort of about a place, and it's just a description of a utopian place in which everything is great. Um, but it also has this, this opening section, which is fascinating, in which there's characters, and they kind of meet each other, and they talk, and, and what, you, what you see is that there's, there's, there's its own drama uh, that's encompassed in book one of the utopia, in which you see the way in which those of us who are living busy lives um, find ourselves, because what happens is Moore is living a busy life. And he says, and then my friend introduced me to someone else. And we got into this conversation. And the conversation, a lot of it was about how much um, should you spend your time trying to, you know, get involved in politics and help other people live well? And how much should you just focus on your own world and what you can take care of? Timeless and question. That's a, that's a really important question. And it's only once you have that question in focus that you move to the question of political institutions. And they start talking about how should you organize schools and how should you organize government. And to me, that's really important because I think a lot of us move into what we call political argument without thinking carefully about the place of political argument within a well-lived life. <laughs> and I have, a, I have a strong suspicion that um, a lot of people, a lot of us move into it we actually move into it too quickly um, as a kind of entertainment, as a kind of sport. Um, and we, and we didn't say that it's not important. I think it, I think it's very important. Um, but I think that it's at its best when we actually understand why politics matters. Um, and once we've only, once we've come to terms with that, I think that's when we're in a position, you know, to really get down to it and to really argue about, you know, whatever the January 6th impeachment thing that's going on right now. And mm -hmm. Someone tried to kill Judge Kavanaugh. Like, you know, the, like, these are real questions. These are important questions and you need to talk about them and you need to come to terms with them and, and think well about them. But you need to know how thinking well about those questions fits into your well-lived life. You in particular. There, I heard a, there was a thinker described this recently who I can't, gonna, it's going to have to be unattributed, but um, described much of that modern debate as almost pornographic in the sense that it's a simulated sense of your power and influence over that thing, which is happening. Yeah. And with similar consequences to your health and conscience and psyche as pornography, which is to say uh, neutral to negative, uh, you know, so I, I, that's, I'm going to, I'm going to read utopia. I've never read it. Um, right. Yeah. Cause, cause sex is important. And so is politics and, but there's an important way to do them, to do them both. Well, <laughs> Dr. West, we're going to leave it there. We could put that on a t-shirt. Absolutely. Dr. Uh, beautiful. Uh, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for talking. You're welcome. It was a pleasure, Austin. <laughs>